Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Well, folks, welcome to December in Washington. We've tracked the Biden tax plan all the way back to when it was candidate Biden's campaign plan. And I think it's a no-brainer to say that this month is the most momentous moment for that plan. If Congress can pass the Build Back Better Act this month, no doubt we will look back at the events of the coming weeks as having been essential to that success. If Congress fails to pass the Build Back Better Act, likewise, fairly or unfairly, we will no doubt point to the events of this December as having been the proximate cause of its demise. So with that, we come back to the Build Back Better Act and we do our best to articulate what lies ahead in the coming days. To help me do that today, we are joined by our friends, Jenna Cunha and Carol Coolish. Okay, so Carol, my first question is for you. In our last episode, we talked a little bit about the 2021 timeline, you know, what has to happen between now and the end of the year. And I recall that it was a lot, but Congress has returned from their Thanksgiving break. So my question to you, Has anything really changed on this timeline? Have they made any progress? Are we still pretty much where we were before the Thanksgiving break? I think the short answer to your question is that I think we are pretty much the same place where we were before the break. If I recall correctly, the last podcast was recorded right after the House had passed its version of the Build Back Better Act. So at that time, that legislation was still pending in the Senate. And that is exactly where we are now. The legislation is still pending in the Senate. Government funding, the last podcast, the government was being funded under a continuing resolution that was set to expire as of December 3rd. Now, at least as of the time that we're recording this webcast, which is late in the day on December 1, we're still operating under a continuing resolution that is set to expire at December 3rd. It's just that now that date is a lot closer. December 3rd is the end of this week. Negotiations have been underway between Democrats and Republicans. And just in terms of where we are at this precise moment in time, the chances of government shutdown seem to be increasing. But by the time people are listening to this, there may be further developments on the government funding front since that December 3rd deadline is coming up very shortly. Debt limit, the limit on the maximum amount of debt that Treasury can issue, that's also still an issue that Congress needs to address soon. The exact date by which the legislation must be enacted, some sort of legislation dealing with this debt limit, remains uncertain right now. And I think this was the case back at the last podcast. Treasury's reached the current debt limit, and it's using extraordinary measures to allow for it to continue to borrow for a limited period of time. It's not clear when the extraordinary measures no longer will suffice, such that the government might be unable to pay its obligations fully and potentially could default on its debt. Treasury Secretary Yellen has indicated that that could be an issue by December 15th under certain scenarios. But it's also possible that the government might be able to fund its obligations for a short time beyond that date, perhaps sometime in January. That depends on a number of things, including the amount of revenue collected, outlays in the coming weeks, as well as whether Treasury can defer all or part of the transfer it said it plans to make to the Highway Trust Fund under the recently enacted infrastructure legislation. So the bottom line is, again, I think this is where we were at the last podcast, the debt 
limit remains an issue, and the exact date by which it absolutely needs to be addressed through legislation is not certain, but is approaching. Defense Authorization Act, I think you probably referred to on the last podcast as well, the, the Senate's still working on its version of this as of the time this, this was being recorded. If they do not succeed in getting defense authorization through the Senate and conference agreement or reconciliation of differences, that could float into next year. So I could see a scenario where if, if they can't conclude it relatively quickly, they could punt that to next year, and that would open up the clock for other things like the Build Back Better Act. That's a busy December. We haven't made a, a lot of progress, and I thought you were very precise. Both you and Secretary Yellen were very precise in how you described the debt limit issue. It's not that Congress must act by December 15th. It's that once we get to December 15th, under certain scenarios, it's not yet clear when the U.S. will no longer be able to meet its financial obligation. So that's a really interesting dynamic for Congress to figure out, you know, when must they act? So I guess, Carol, is it at least theoretically possible that that real deadline, the hard deadline, wouldn't come until January? I ask because, of course, that would certainly clear a lot of time on the December calendar if somehow they could get through to January. So is that at least a possible scenario? Well, yeah, it's possible that that could be when the absolute flashing red light date is. And the Congressional Budget Office has said in something they released yesterday that depending upon what receipts and outlays are and depending upon how much money is transferred to the trust fund, it could be January. The problem is that Congress doesn't know what that date is. Yellen doesn't yet know exactly what that date is. The markets start to get very nervous about dealing with potential default, and it takes a while to actually move legislation dealing with the debt limit. So it's one of those things where we don't really know the date by which they absolutely must do something, but they need to make sure they do something by that date. And as I said, in anticipation of market reactions, it looks like we're, we're fast approaching a date. So it's a bit of a chasing your tail type situation. So for now, it remains a problem and a December problem until we find out otherwise. Okay, well, that's helpful, Carol. So there's a lot to do. Now, Jen, let's turn back to the Build Back Better Act. Once the Senate does turn to the Build Back Better Act, so let's assume for the moment that they do the government funding by the end of this week, that they don't urgently have to attend to the debt limit, and they turn to the Build Back Better Act, how long, realistically, will it take the Senate to process the bill? And maybe just talk about some of the steps that will be required for the Senate to actually pass the Build Back Better Act and send it back, presumably, to the House. It's funny, John, because this isn't an overnight process. We're not talking about the Senate picking up the bill and voting on the bill the next day. This isn't a process that can be wrapped up overnight. There are a number of procedural steps, procedural hurdles that have to be cleared before the final vote in the Senate. And then, of course, you know, if the Senate makes any changes, it has to go back to the House and the House has to process the bill again. But right now, you know, this is a reconciliation bill, so it has to go through what's called as a birdbath, which is reviewing the various provisions of the bill to make sure that they are consistent with reconciliation. After that, there would be the release of the manager's amendment. So Schumer would release the actual bill. There are a number of procedural votes in the Senate. There would have to be a motion to proceed. And then it would be Senate consideration. That would involve not just putting it up for a vote, but it would be, have to be open to amendments. And of course, Republicans would be very likely to offer many, many amendments to this bill. Of course, most of those would be voted down, but that would be what's called the voterama. And that's where you have a long stretch of time, not too long, but you know, number of hours where you have amendments that are called up and they're voted up or down um, with respect to the bill. 
the biggest fear in a reconciliation bill. Not necessarily in this one, because there is a lot of wiggle room. There's a lot of open budgetary space in the bill. But if there is an amendment that carves out a big revenue raiser, something that's going to pay for the bill to keep it in compliance, then that causes problems. But that is unlikely in this bill. But again, not an overnight process. A number of steps that have to be cleared before the Senate could process and send that bill back over to the House if they make any changes. So, Jen, one of the things that held up the House bill was getting a CBO revenue estimate. Remember, oh. you know, we talked about it. It took far longer than the House wanted to to get that. And they wanted to really wait to vote until they got the CBO score. Talk about how the CBO score is relevant in the Senate process. Oh, well, the CBO score, it's relevant in two different manners. Number one, politically. We know that you know moderate senators like Senator Manchin have been keeping a close eye on the CBO score. He wants to know exactly how much is being spent in the bill, how much revenue is being raised in the bill. So the CBO score is a big driver politically, but also because this is a reconciliation bill, it's all about the dollars and cents. The CBO score is necessary in order to ensure that it meets the reconciliation instructions, not just overall, but also among the committees of jurisdiction. Remember that reconciliation instruction specifically identifies the amount of uh, spending that is allocated to each committee of jurisdiction. So the CBO score basically is a report card on whether or not those budgetary restrictions have been met in the bill. So that takes time. Yeah, it did, as we found out with the House. So, and again, back to your point, even though they've got the ability to add $1.75 trillion to the deficit, so should they run over, they would not necessarily violate the reconciliation instructions because they've got kind of that buffer, but they could still violate the reconciliation rules by having the allocations by committee out of whack. Is that right? That's correct. All right, Jen. Well, that was helpful, although complicated. So there's a lot of work to be done in the Senate. Now, Carol, let's come back to you. I think I've been assuming, but tell me this is a bad assumption, that the Senate isn't just going to take the House bill, because obviously that would be a very short process if they just voted on the House bill. That's not going to happen, right? Am I correct? I completely agree with you, John. I fully expect there to be, be changes. Just as a threshold matter, we've been talking since the beginning of the year about the fact that it's just a political challenge to get all 50 Senate Democrats on board. You know, we've got a 50-50 Senate. No Republicans support this bill, which is what everybody expects to be the case. You have to get every single Senate Democrat on board and then rely on the vote of the Vice President of the United States as President of the Senate to break a tie. So that gives each senator, as we've all seen, a tremendous amount of leverage. Just looking at Senator Manchin's concerns have received a lot of press. He's expressed concerns about the family leave provisions in the House bill. He also appears to have concerns about the overall size of the House bill. So, you know, may want cuts in the spending programs in the bill. On the tax side, just as another example, Senator Bernie Sanders, he has concerns about the SALT provision that's in the House bill, given the distributional effect of benefiting upper income individuals. So he wants to find a different way to address SALT concerns. And it's a more general matter. Senators can be expected to want to shape at least in 
to an extent what's in major legislation. That, that's always the case. Plus, there's a ton of lobbying going on on both the tax and the spending proposals. So you would affect that to have some impact on proposals. So yeah, I absolutely would expect there to be changes and would be surprised if there were not. But with that said, I also think that the House tried to put together a bill that would be close to what they thought could pass the Senate. And There have been discussions along the way among House leadership, Senate leadership, and the White House, including the president. So they have tried to put together a House bill that should be appealing in many regards to the Senate. For example, on the tax side, the House ended up dropping individual and corporate rate increases that Ways and Means Committee previously had approved and substituting the individual surtax and the corporate minimum tax for those. That was done because of concerns over on the Senate side that Senator Sinema had raised with rate increases. The House also tried to address some of the issues that could have raised procedural concerns with the Senate in advance. So Even though I expect there to be changes made on the Senate side, which could include additions, subtractions, and other modifications, I also think there's a good chance that the general structure of the tax part of the bill may end up looking similar to what's in the House bill in large part. But again, I would definitely expect there to be changes. Okay, so our assumption has been right that we will see changes in the Senate. Of course, that means that it will have to go back to the House since the House and the Senate would have to pass identical legislation. That's one of the other many implications of the Senate making changes to the bill that has already come over from the House. Okay, got it. So, Jen, back to you then. If the bill, let's just say, as Carol suggested, gets smaller because Senator Manchin, for example, insists that the bill gets smaller, does that mean that the tax pay-fors, the tax increases, also get smaller? And if so, how does the Senate go about this process of determining which ones and how much they would actually modify as we go about the process of the Senate processing the House bill? I think that is a reasonable expectation. If the bill gets smaller, then there's just less need to raise the same level of revenue, right? We know that the House bill raised over $2 trillion and it also spent over $2 trillion. So as it gets smaller, potentially these things shrink. A lot of the considerations that are taken in is apolitically. So which one of the provisions don't hinge on a political talking point? And one of the biggest considerations on the individual side is how are any of the provisions that could potentially be trimmed from the bill, how are they going to impact the distributional analysis of the bill? Remember, that's that table that the Joint Committee on Taxation releases that shows how the bill's provisions break down over the various income brackets. That is really going to inform the individual side, right? If you trim provisions that largely affect high-income individuals, well, that's going to have a negative impact on the distributional effects of the bill. On the corporate side, I mean, I think that there isn't a whole lot left. We have the big raisers, like that minimum tax. That's certainly ripe for trimming. It raises a significant amount of revenue, so there's a lot of fat to trim potentially on that provision. But it's going to be tough. I mean, it's really going to be a matter of, is this a political concern for any member? Remember, we can't afford to lose a single vote. So any member raises a concern with respect to the provisions. It puts it in peril, or at the very least, makes it ripe for modification. Interesting. So it's a little bit of a political consideration, you know, where the votes, what will people agree to? But also there's a policy aspect to this. As you were saying, you've got to keep an eye on those distributional tables, how those are going to look. So, all right, got it. So Carol, sort of a related question to you then. 
Is there some sort of equilibrium, you think, that Congress would feel compelled to maintain between the individual side of the bill, taxation of individuals, and the corporate changes? For example, could they just knock out all the corporate increases but leave the individual increases in the bill or vice versa? Or do you think it's important to maintain some sort of equilibrium between the two? I think at the end of the day, what's going to be of paramount importance to them is putting together a bill that can get all 50 Senate Democrats on board. And I think that is what's going to be driving the shape, and the substance of the Senate bill. Now, that said, I think that it's a natural part of that process of getting all 50 Senate Democrats on board. You're going to see provisions on both the individual side and on the corporate side. And to go to your question, I would be very surprised if they were to say, we're just going to do tax increases on individuals, but not on corporations, because that raises political concerns. And I don't think you'd get the votes that you need for that type of approach. But I don't think that there's any sort of formulaic approach or hard formula that they're working towards in terms of if you make X dollars of changes on this side, you must make Y dollars of changes on the other side to maintain a predetermined set equilibrium. But I do think politically you'll end up with changes on both sides. But I think what's going to be driving this ultimately is getting the 50 votes in the Senate, all 50 Senate Democrats, so that you can then rely on the vice president to break the tie. Well, that's a really thoughtful answer, Carol, because we often think about political mandates and we often think about policy choices. But I think you're suggesting, and I think you're right here, is that they're not entirely distinct, right? That politics are driven by policy sometimes. And of course, policy is also driven by politics. So it's not like we've got two completely divorced options here, the political answer or the policy-driven answer, that sometimes, and this is a good thing, I think, that those are one and the same. And I think that's what you're saying is that, you know, they will make this choice about balancing corporate and individual, and part of that will be driven by the politics around it as well as the policy. Okay, well, last question. Let's just be honest now, because I know people want to know, because people are making their holiday plans. They may have vacations. They may have other things they're thinking about. Realistically, how late can this process go? How deep into 2021? Are we talking all the way to December 31? Or do you think they will either succeed or pull the plug on this sometime before then? Jen, what do you think? I think the latest possible is New Year's Eve before the ball drops in in, in Times Square. That's, I, I think that's just, you know, the end of the year is the natural deadline. So that would mean Working up till, say, the Christmas holiday, maybe a day or two off, right? Coming back that week between Christmas and New Year's and finishing the work all the way up till December 31st. And would that include then, Jen, the Senate passing a bill, going back to the House, the House accepting, yes. you know, some sort of record? Uh, that's a lot to do, but I, I hear you. And I think it, that would, if that's the scenario, it could easily take all that time. What do you think, Carol? Do you think we're going all the way down to December 31? Or do you think they might give it up or finish, try and finish it sooner? I think sooner is going to be hard, and I'm going to follow the rule that usually from a tax practitioner, tax community perspective, the holidays tend to get ruined, and I fully expect that people in tax will be working through the holiday season. So like Jen, I think if they do end up getting something done in 2021, I would expect it to be very last minute. I also you know, think there's a chance that it rolls into early 2022. And I also think there's a chance that they just don't get the votes to get something together. I, I personally, I, I find it hard to predict 
where Senator Manchin ultimately is going to be. We've got new inflation numbers that will be coming out on December 10th that could affect his analysis. We've got concerns about this new variant of COVID that could potentially change the policy dynamic and priorities. There's all kinds of things that can happen, and I'm having a hard time reading him. But at the end of the day, I tend to think, and no one knows for sure, but I do think he'll get on board. And I think the end of the year tends to be a natural deadline. So on balance, I think that might be the strongest probability is that they get something done by the end of the year. But I see the other possibilities as well at rolling into early 2022. And then also politically, they can't get the votes to get it done. I think they're all possibilities. Well, folks, you heard it here first that <laughs> this could very well ruin not just one, but two holidays here in December. So I'd like to remind you to not shoot the messenger. We're just calling it as we see it. So with that, Carol, Jen, thank you very much. That's all we have time for this week. In closing, let me address a question you are likely at least thinking about and one that Carol addressed briefly earlier. Why does Congress need to finish the Build Back Better Act this year? Couldn't they finish their work in 2022? That's a fair question, and I'll admit, I was probably too dismissive of that possibility earlier in the year, saying it was 2021 or bust. Conventional wisdom holds that Congress does not do big bold legislation, especially not raising taxes, in an election year. And of course, 2022 is an important midterm election. Odds of Republicans flipping one or both houses of Congress seem to be growing according to those people who evaluate these things for a living. So that conventional wisdom suggests it's now or it's never. But you know, conventional wisdom is just that, conventional. And as you know, since you've been with us every step of the way this year, this process has been anything but conventional. So could Congress pick up the Build Back Better Act again in January and make another run at it if they fail to finish this year? Sure, there's no procedural or technical reason why not. But let's be honest, if the Build Back Better Act is facing a not insurmountable, but nevertheless uphill battle in getting enacted in 2021, well, that hill will almost certainly be steeper next year. So we don't know because, as you've heard me say countless times this year, it's not yet knowable. But I do know this. If Congress does not pass the Build Back Better Act this year, it's not just going away. Congress, in true earnestness, will likely spend most of next year in some fashion talking about it. And because they will, we probably will too. With that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Please don't forget to submit your questions, your comments, and suggestions to our inbox. Take care, and hope to see you soon.